This episode may contain content, but is not appropriate for all audiences. Specifically, if you are a survivor, what you are about to hear could be triggering. If you need help finding a doctor, please visit psychologytoday.com slash us slash therapists. If you are a survivor of clergy abuse in Maryland, we ask that you contact Rich Wolf the Attorney General Justice Department Investigator at rwolf at oag.state.md.us or you can call him at 410-576-7290. We believe in no survivor left behind. So if you would like your voice to be heard, please reach out. Please take note of this number. 800-656-HOPE. If you or anyone you know needs help with any kind of sexual assault, please reach out to RAIN. RAIN is the National Sexual Assault Telephone Hotline, and again, their number is 800-656-HOPE. SNAP is the survivor's network of those abused by priests. More information can be found at snapnetwork.org or on our website at shadowspod.com. Maryland. On February 20th, survivors Teresa Lancaster and Jean Weiner joined other survivors and experts at a hearing to state committee members on why the Hidden Predator Act of 2020 should be passed. This act would eliminate the statute of limitations for abuse survivors, allowing them to have their day in civil court to expose their abuser. Last year, this act passed the Maryland House, but failed in the Senate. This year, they continue their fight for survivors in Maryland. The full hearing is around two hours long, so we will release them one after another. During this first part, the panel, consisting of survivors and experts, will speak to the committee members. There are three panels in this first part, with Jean speaking in the last one. After each panel speaks, the committee members ask questions prior to the next panel starting. Next week's episode will include... Teresa Lancaster. Let's go to House Bill 974. Delegate Wilson. Good afternoon, Mr. Chairman, Madam Vice Chair, and colleagues. Um, here to ask you to consider a House Bill 974, statute of limitations bill. Um, it's a little uncomfortable sometimes for me, especially coming from this committee. Uh, my reputation here isn't always the best. Um, I know some folks find me a little bit combative, angry, and personal. I do have that scorched earth style of politics. Um, sometimes moody, frustrated, and distant, or unpredictable. So um, I have to accept all that. In fact, I own it. Um, 
I've testified about my childhood about six years, and so I'm always kind of shocked when people are uh, disappointed or uh, surprised that that's the kind of person that I am. That's my persona, because my mindset since I was a little boy has always been the same, and um, college degrees and elected office hasn't changed that. I ain't never been shit, ain't gonna be shit. I wake up every morning that same way. Um, of course I'm distrustful. You know, instead of being selected as to be part of a family, I was chosen as uh, Tom Wilson's little sexual play toy. And I'm volatile because I was forced to perform oral sex on a grown man as punishment for my misdeeds. Yeah, I'm cynical because the one man who said he loved me, the one that I had to call father, was the same man who sodomized me for years. And so I'm full of self-loathing and anger because in my heart I should have fought harder. I didn't try hard enough to stop it, even though I was a tiny boy. Most of all, I feel the guilt because I didn't report it sooner. I have no idea how many other people he may have hurt. He was a kindergarten teacher. He was a Sunday school teacher, and he was a Cub Scout leader. But very much, most of all, I have to live in fear that one day I'm going to wake up just like him and have some weird, undescribed appetite for little boys. Because they tell me it's cyclical. See, I know no matter how hard I try, I'm not going to be normal. I'm sick as all my secrets, and that's why it hurts. Always. And I'm not going to be okay, so no matter when you see how I walk around and go like me, I'm not okay. I'm not like you. So I couldn't imagine how much more damaged or broken I'd be if I found out that Tom had other victims beforehand and that these other children complained about him and social services didn't do anything about it. That they could have protected me from him, and they chose not to. And that's why I'm here. I'm not here to regale you with the horrors that I've survived or remind you of how messed up I am. Most of you have dealt with me enough to know that. I'm here because there are many institutions that could have protected our countless child victims from sex abuse. And they chose not to, and they still choose not to. Because many of those victims are now time-barred from bringing up these um, actions the criminal evidence is stale, and as such, these predators are still out there. They're not exposed. And I know you might ask, why do I even keep telling you my personal story? Because you guys passed it out, you know, 17 to 4 last year. And um, I have trust issues, number one. So, and I'll, I'll honestly, you know, I never take anything for granted. But, but I, I testify because I've got to give courage to the people and the survivors who get ready to speak when I'm done. And also give voice for those who can't find their voice yet. So thank you for indulging me. This, that, this bill basically eliminates the statute of limitations. Ten other states have done so. Six other states are considering doing so. Maryland would be far from unique. And it provides, most importantly, a two-year look-back window or revival to expose these hidden predators, as in California did in 2003. And because of that, 300 additional predators that were not discovered through the criminal process were found. Minnesota did in 2013. 125 additional predators that we had did not know exist were found. And lastly, to get rid of that deception that was placed in the 2017 statute, uh, excuse me, uh, um, piece of legislation called a statute of repose, that nobody that was in the committee then even knew about. It was uncodified language. There was never an intent by this body to vest unconstitutionally or constitutionally protected rights for predators, perpetrators, and their organizations. So you may ask why it's not enough just with the criminal, the criminal charges now. And I've been through this before. Obviously, criminal discovery is very limited. Civil discovery is very expansive. 
That's how we found about the Boy Scout perversion files, the PA grand jury report, the Bishop's secret, Bishop's secret archives. And prosecution focuses on an individual, not an institution. These cases are special because there is a compelling state interest to expose these predators that were not discovered. In addition, they're special except because this is a unique culture of silence, secrecy, and shame that surround these crimes. And the reporting age is an average of 52 years old before people start talking about it. You may hear about unfair litigation because now it's unbalanced, but there have been no reports of false claims in other 16 states that have done this. Plaintiff still has a burden, so eroding evidence actually penalizes the plaintiff. Cases are still decided on their merits. You're not going to hear these institutions say that children were not sexually abused. They'll come to your office, they might talk, speak up today, but they will not deny that these children were sexually abused or that these institutions did not know about it. They won't deny that they hid them, moved them, or protected these predators. They'll just tell you it's not a good bill. You know, I never wanted this to be my legacy. My kids know about this now because of um, these efforts. It's super embarrassing. But I've accepted that God brought me here for that reason, to protect these child sex abuse victims and expose these predators. So I want somebody to ask the church, why did God bring them here? Thank you. Thank you very much. The remaining witnesses will have two minutes to speak, and at the discretion of the chair, we'll extend that if necessary. Whoever would like to go next. Uh, chairman and members, thank you for uh, allowing me to speak here. I'm going to go in reverse of my testimony, given the time. Um, my name is Catherine Robb. I'm the Executive Director of Child U.S. Advocacy. I am also a survivor of child sexual abuse from age 9 to 14, so a lot of what the delegate says resonates with me. Last year, in, nine, uh, in 2019, 41 states introduced statute of limitation reform. We track this all over the country. I was just in Kansas last week testifying there. Of those 41 states, 23 states passed SOL reform for child sexual abuse. Nine of those states passed either window legislation or revival legislation. This year alone, and let me remind you it's only February, 40, uh, 27 states, excuse me, have introduced SOL reform for child sexual abuse, and 14 of those states, including this one, have either window or revival legislation. This is a national trend, and the reason it's a national trend is because it's a national problem. We have an epidemic of child sexual abuse in this country, and it is up to legislative bodies like yours to be wise and to make decisions to protect children. We have the data. We didn't have the data years ago. We didn't have the data about age 52. We didn't have the data about adverse childhood experiences. We did not have the data uh, relative to um, the science of traumatology. Guess what? Now we know. We know the problem. We know how vast it is. 
We know the response. We know that it takes victims years, decades, if ever, to report. So I would say to all of you with utmost respect, now we know. Now we know. And it's time for you to respond and to follow the national trend. I see I'm out of time. I'm happy to take questions after. Thank you. Good afternoon, Mr. Chairman and committee members. My name is Carolyn Surick in support of Bill HB 974. The issues before you are whether to eliminate the civil statute of limitations and whether to include a two-year look-back window. I'm a key school survivor. It's not important that you know exactly what happened to me, but the timeline is. I graduated from Key in 76. I was a drug addict in the 80s. I started therapy in 85. It was 1993 when I finally pulled myself together enough to go and talk to a board member. In 1996, I met with the head of the school. I asked him to shine a bright light on the school's terrible history. I asked him to fire the teacher who was still there who had abused his students. And I asked him to help pay for the therapy retroactively in the present and in the future. He said no to everything. He would not shine a bright light. He would not help survivors get therapy. He would not fire the teacher who had slept with his students. There's a very real misconception about the lasting damage done by this kind of abuse. Our life expectancy is shorter. We're more likely to be drug addicts and obese. We're less likely to have successful long-term relationships. We're much less likely to have had the career successes that our peers experience. We don't make as much money, and we never will. Some people think this kind of trauma is like a broken leg. It's an injury that can be fixed. It might hurt when it rains, but most of the time you don't feel it. But in truth, it's more like a long-term illness. It's more like diabetes or hemophilia. It's with me every day, and I'll be in therapy for the rest of my life. Schools and churches are institutions. At any given moment, they're doing a cost-benefit analysis. Right now, they're helping survivors because the world is watching. In five years, they won't have to. You're here today to bear witness to these people who are telling you that terrible things happened and institutions knew. They knew what was going on and they did nothing. And we, the victims, are asking you to do something, to do the right thing and pass this legislation. Thank you so much. Good afternoon, Chairman Clippinger and distinguished members of the committee. My name is Claudia Remington. I'm the executive director of the Maryland State Council on Child Abuse and Neglect, SCAN, as we call it. It's um, mandated by the Family Law Article um, to advise the governor and the General Assembly on prevention, detection, prosecution, and treatment of child abuse and neglect. SCAN has submitted written um, testimony, in, and we strongly favor this bill. Um, it's pediatricians, law enforcement, mental health professionals, educators, prosecutors, child and family serving agents, nonprofits, and survivors all behind this. You will hear many survivors and allies today who are demanding transparency and accountability from all of our in, uh, institutions in order to expose hidden predators and provide healing and justice for survivors. Several themes will run throughout the testimony that you're about to hear. I'd like to highlight a few. First, um, ask, um, many ask why survivors don't tell earlier. The truth is that many have told earlier. They did tell on multiple occasions. They told teachers, friends, parents, 
pediatricians, law enforcement, CPS workers, prosecutors, administrators of churches, youth-serving organizations, and Olympic committees. And they told the Maryland General Assembly over and over for the last 20 years, um, thank you last year, this committee, for passing this bill out of the committee and through the floor at a 135 to uh, 3 vote. Um, we ask that you listen carefully to the testimony and ask that you um, pass this bill out of um, the committee this time. Um, other than um, transparency um, and accountability, you'll also hear um, from some folks um, on the opposition, and not, not maybe in testimony today, but behind the scenes. I know they are meeting with folks again behind the scenes. And one thing you'll hear is there, the social sciences have a name for it. It's called DARVA. They first deny the abuse and the cover-up, or they, attack, they will attack the victim or those that expose the abuse and the cover-up, and they reverse the um, victim and offender. And listen to that in the arguments that you hear. Many, many who say they are doing all they can to help um, survivors heal purposely act and spend money on defending assets and reputations at the expense of, expense of children and survivors, all under the cloak of darkness. The statute of repose last, uh, in 2017 was a tremendous example of that. We ask that you pass HB 947 to ensure transparency and accountability, healing and survive, uh, justice for survivors, and protection for future generations of children. Thank you. Thank you very much. Are there questions for the panel? Go to Delegate Cox first, then Delegate Shetty. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, members of the panel, and uh, to my fellow Delegate, I want to just commend you and state very clearly to you that uh, you know how much I admire you. I tell my son in the 82nd to be inspired by you, and hopefully he'll follow your path and become a member of the bar and join me in my practice someday. So your story is inspiring. Um, I came to you with some potential amendments that we discussed. I'm just going to ask you real quickly whether or not you're um, okay with, with those amendments. We've, uh, we haven't we had a chance to review them before, okay. and I'll say this only because um, of the um, statute of repose that was snuck in one of the other bills is we really would like a chance to actually review them word by word to make sure, sure there is no duplicity here. I understand you might be moving in good faith, but sure, yeah, I'd like to see. Well, uh, real quick, um, one of them, I, my understanding from your testament from last year, could you remind me, who was your guardian at the time you were abused, sir? Uh, it would have been probably uh, Social Services, and then I was adopted okay. by the and so in that context, my research and, and my work in the law has um, shown that that happens, unfortunately. That's a very sad fact. Correct. Um, in fact, like 80% of some of the incidences, um, very high sexual abuse rating. So that's one of my amendments. And, and the other one would be to put that on par with the current bill as to private entities in terms of damages. Um, Correct. So if you could take a look at that and let me know. Sure. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, this is among the most difficult bills that we hear each year, um, I think, for many of us. Um, and I want to thank Delegate Wilson for her courage and for leading this effort for so many years. Um, as I shared in this bill hearing last year, um, I myself am a survivor of assault. And um, like you, Delegate, um, could not report for some time. 
Um, and like many who are here who support this effort, um, you know, I think there are so many people who, and so much of the research is around, um, you know, what happened to you is not your fault. And um, you should never feel like the choice to report and when you report it should not feel guilty about that. Um, I want to just ask a couple of questions, please, to um, one of the panelists, Ms. Surratt. Um, thank you for sharing your story. Um, and um, I know you shared that you had been working in therapy for some time and that this is something that will live with you for the rest of your life. And um, I'm just curious if there are other things you've had to do to, to heal and to go through this process. Um, and then a second question is whether um, the, the institution that you attended, um, I don't know the status of whether it's still around or bankrupt or if there is um, a bankruptcy in this institution or other institutions that are, are um, involved in these type of efforts, like how does that affect the survivors of what's gone on? Thank you so much for asking. Um, I have been committed to wellness for a long time, and, and I don't actually ever talk about it because uh, when I tried to stop being a drug addict, the first thing that really helped was acupuncture, and I haven't given it up. So I've been in acupuncture for 35 years sort of regularly. And, um, and, and as part of my personal wellness, I also think that body work's really important. So that's been sort of a part of my wellness. I, in November, went back into my um, date books since 1985 to count the number of therapy sessions I've had. And in November, it was 2,314. Um, but there were a couple of years missing. So it is, it is a, a long process. Um, and as for the institution, um, the Key School is in Annapolis. It's still in business. It has a $12 million endowment. Um, and they have very clearly said that they will not uh, make any kind of, they will not help with therapy retroactively of any kind. They will help people as they move forward. They have a $10,000 cap per person per year, which doesn't help some people. Um, and they do not guarantee that it'll happen for more than a year. They, they've said that they will continue that fund indefinitely, but indefinitely is not the same as permanently. Delegate McComas. I, this is not really help us to understand. Um, Terry Anderson was one of the hostages that was taken during the Iran crisis, and he, he wrote a book, and I think he forgave the, um, the captors, and then he just kind of disappeared because he was a, a journalist and everything, and he kind of lived with his family, and I, I, I've never been able to get a hold of the book. But um, I think the whole point was that to forgive and you could move on. And I guess um, how, how does the opening of the statute of limitations for two years – help with the forgiveness um, that that it, it will it will it provide some peace is what I want to know well I don't believe that there's any silver silver bullet for healing in any individuals we have individuals that are in great high upper middle class lives that commit suicide because of bad 
test scores. So each person deals with tragedy and um, a heartache in a different way. Um, so forgiveness may work for some. Um, I don't believe that that's the end all as well. I think the two-year look-back window for me was more about making sure that each of the individuals that have suffered, if they want to, can have not only their day in court, but again, identify these individuals who may, as of yet, not be identified. Forgiveness is a, I guess, uh, I think it's something that, you know, people can choose to do or not. I don't, I don't think at the end of the day um, it necessarily helps the healing process. I know I can forgive Tom all I want. It's not going to change my tomorrow, and it's not going to change my yesterday. I have a good heart but it doesn't mean it's going to make things better. It's not going to undo anything. So um, I think, you know, again, that, that's a tool for, it's a one tool in the pack, but it's not a silver bullet. If, if I could just respond to that. Um, as a survivor myself and someone who studies this all over the country, uh, I think it's really hard, and it depends on your personal experience, your religious, spiritual uh, background. I think it's very, very difficult to find forgiveness if there's no accountability. If there's no accountability, how, you know, how can you forgive someone? You know, if someone smacks you and then says, well, I didn't do it or I didn't mean it, are you supposed to say, oh, well, I forgive you for not admitting it, <laughs> stopping it, and stopping it from happening to others? It's hard to find forgiveness that way. Thank you, Mr. Chair, um, and thank you, Delegate Wilson, for um, your tenacity in bringing um, this bill. I have a question for, um, and I, I apologize, I don't have your name on the end. Um, you mentioned um, the science of pharmacology. Mm -hmm. I never heard of it, but I can understand why it, why it mm -hmm. exists. Could you please speak to, um, especially with respect to this bill, the um, problem with memory recall, um, when you have been um, sexually assaulted as a child, and um, how there could be a delayed um, uh, recall, I mean memory, um, and repression could be a tool that is used to um, manage uh, your trauma. Well, first of all, there's a difference between not being able to remember and not being not allowing yourself to remember. And what we know from the science of traumatology, certainly from the adverse childhood experience studies, which are uh, gaining every day, there's a new uh, research on these, right? Um, what we are learning is that the only way children can survive, I know for myself personally, the only way to survive, I never forgot the experiences of sexual abuse, but there is a, a psychological theory of disassociation. So children disassociate from the pain and trauma. We see this in wor world, in you know, countries that are uh, in, in the midst of war, like Syria, what children go through there. Um, in terms of post-traumatic stress, um, whether it be depression, um, whether it be sleeping issues, uh, failure to thrive at school, um, uh, eating issues, uh, a whole host of issues. Um, I, for example, couldn't sleep at night because my abuser raped me at night. So I slept in the day. My mother took me to a neurologist. She thought I had a problem. Well, I did have a problem, but I couldn't share it with her. 
So, and the reasons I couldn't share it with her is not because I couldn't remember. It was because I couldn't think about what I could remember. And all of the research backs us up. I hope that answers your question. It answers my question, but I know that I've heard um, survivors speak to um, almost the thought that it was almost needing confirmation in the sense that they thought that they that they had done something. Yeah, that's and, that's very common. I mean. Even to this day, sometimes if I read the book I wrote or something, it doesn't, it's not me. Right. In fact, when I wrote that book, that's where the damage really took place because I had forgotten so much. You can't walk around with all that anxiety right. all the time and still operate. That's the part about the being the, 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 the disassociated disorder is it, it, it's not just for that, it's for people. Like you just back away from everyone and you learn, and that really, when, when you're reliving that, it's like ripping all the wounds open at the same time. So a lot of folks just can't live that. You can't survive that way. You can't sleep. I don't. You can't sleep. You can't survive. The only way to do it is to shut those little parts off of your mind, and either be through repression, memory recall, whatever. It's just yes, that didn't happen to me. Right. And at some point, if you if you practice a lot long enough, it will become the truth. Right. And and so what my my question is is so I, I agree with everything you said, and at some point in time, whenever you're ready perhaps after years of therapy or whatever, um, when you're ready to admit, then a bill like this would is a tool to um, perhaps give some level of um, assistance. Closure. Um, healing. Closure and that's healing when, when that time comes. And that's something that you just can't put um, – um, a finite number of years on. And, and, and I just need to see if that is That's something correct. that you would agree with. I don't know. Yeah. I just wanted to add that we do have somebody here from the University of Maryland School of Psychiatry that's going to be testifying okay. as to childhood trauma from the National right. Traumatic Stress, Child Stress Network. Thank you. Delegate Pippi and Delegate Griffith. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. So you alluded to um, several other states that have either actively pursued similar legislation. Um, I want to say I remember in the interim, in between this, this session and last session, there were some states that similar legislation passed. And my first question is, was it in the same posture as this, this legislation here? And the reason I ask that is that some folks um, have expressed concerns about you know, is there a constitutional issue related to changing statutes of limitations, for example? Um, and so, like I said, I, in the interim, I was interesting to see that it looked as if there were six or seven states that had passed the exact same legislation. Um, and so if you could speak to that and then speak to the issue um, of the statute of limitations and, and if there are any issues related to that. Uh, certainly. So, of course, it depends on the jurisdiction, because every jurisdiction has a little bit of a different uh, constitution. But most states are saying it is constitutional. If there's concern about the constitutionality of the retroactivity, what they are, they're, what they're saying is, let's leave that up to the pros, the courts. Let's let's legislate here to fix a societal problem. And if there are some concerns about 
constitutionality of retroactivity, let's leave it up to that, up to the, up to the courts to do their job, what they do. But right now, Maryland, quite frankly, and with all due respect, is in the dark ages. Uh, other states are moving rapidly. Like I said, 27 states this year have introduced legislation like this. Last year, we had nine states that passed retroactivity. Um, New York has just introduced just this year another uh, bill to extend the window because they realized it wasn't enough time. California has introduced a new window, um, another three-year window, uh, and Hawaii has introduced a window three times because they're realizing what's happening with this window legislation is we're discovering, we're discovering all these hidden predators. Now, the state of Vermont gets the gold medal because their legislation last year um, was complete elimination for child sexual abuse, complete elimination, and a wide open permanent window. You know what Vermont said? Vermont said, we stand with justice. Vermont said, we stand with kids. We are not going to stand with sexual predators and institutions that hide them. Right. So I just, I, I think it's, you would say it's fair to say that this is not groundbreaking nationally, that other states have implemented windows and, and different versions. It might be groundbreaking in Maryland, but nationally that's not the case. No, nationally it is uh, an enormous trend. Last year, uh, I mean, it was just a banner year. And quite frankly, it's only February. And in the past six weeks, I've been in six different states testifying because so many states have introduced these these types of bills because states are saying, we have to act. You know, I'm sure that Maryland, like other states, did this when we discovered, oh, kids need to be in car seats. You all responded. You changed the law. Kids shouldn't smoke. You all responded. You changed the law. You saw the dangers, right? As soon as we know about the harm and we understand the scientific data, and there's scientific data, there's social science data, and there's medical data out there about why survivors do not report, why they take so long. Not just my personal experience, but I've read all the data. So what's happening is legislative bodies are saying, okay, now we know. You know, everyone's worried about the coronavirus, this epidemic. But let me tell you, if you look at the numbers of one in four girls and one in six boys will be sexually assaulted before they're 18, we have a much bigger problem on our hands, people. Okay, this is a virus, epidemic proportions, that doesn't come with a fever. It doesn't come with a rash. It doesn't come with upper respiratory distress. What it comes with is children who are silenced and harmed for the rest of their life. And that's why legislative bodies across the country are responding and doing the right thing. Thank you. Thank you. Are there further questions for this panel? Out of the Shadows is sponsored by Best Fiends. One of the things that I love about true crime is that the further you dig into a story, the more layers you uncover. 
that's part of what I love about the puzzle game Best Fiends, too. The more I play, the more fun it gets. Reaching each new level feels like uncovering a new layer in a story. One you get to take part in. And the best part is, the longer you play Best Fiends, the more exciting it gets. When I need to get my mind off the world and hard to hear stories, I play Best Fiends. I play every night, and since my game is linked to my Facebook, I compete with friends to reach a higher level. When you start playing, make sure to add me on Facebook. My favorite character is Vega. She's a firefly. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new levels, events, and characters added each month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips. You can even play offline, with over 100 million downloads and tons of 5-star reviews. Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends, without the R, Best Fiends. Fitzpatrick, Wendy Lane, Yena Cochran, Dave Lorenz. I will start from you here on my farthest to the right, and we'll go all the way across. The two at the end will need to switch seats so that you can be in the camera shot when, uh, when you're testifying. Okay? Please begin. Um, good afternoon. My name is Patricia Stallings-Mills. Um, I have a very unique perspective on this particular um, House bill. Um, I was a 12-year graduate from uh, Catholic schools in Montgomery County, the Archdiocese of Washington, and currently live in Howard County. Um, my father was a permanent ordained deacon in the Catholic Church, um, a, a permanent deacon, and while I was a child of seven, I woke up one night to see him raping my 16-year-old sister as we shared a bedroom. Um, I felt confused, I felt ashamed, and the long and short of it was then the abuse, because he realized I saw him, began with me including verbal and physical violence until I was the age of 16. In 2007, after my mother died, my sister and I were faced for the first time in our 40s and 50s to talk about what we had experienced at the hands of our own father. The worst of it was starting to understand that this man's focus for his ministry in the Catholic Church was to the youth of his parish, which included being a CYO coach, which included working with the school, and included, most specifically, ministering to teenagers, giving him free access to more victims. Suddenly, our silence took on a whole new meaning. What if? What if we weren't the only ones and we were devastated? At that time, the only recourse we had then was to go to the Montgomery County Police Department to ask them if there was any way we could find out, if there's any way we could do anything about this and, and hopefully end his, his ministry at the church. Donna Fenton, the uh, state's attorney at that time, uh, the state's attorney's office at that time, graciously, kindly walked us through the process, but telling us all along, you guys don't understand, this started back in the 1970s, when in the beautiful state of Maryland and many other states, we didn't have laws on the books to protect children from incest and rape. Now this bill is before you. I don't want my children, my grandchildren to say, do you remember that decade in the 2000s when you had to report something like this? My father, in a phone sting with the Montgomery County Police, 
arrogantly admitted to raping over 60 times while he was a permanent priest. I believe as a Catholic, quickly, that God sets our feet on a path for a certain purpose, and monsters like my father changed those paths irreversibly. Um, I am 55 years old, and I still live with this every day, counseling, with no monies from the Catholic Church or any other organization because they said that would be paramount to an omission of guilt that you have to fend for yourself. Other girls in the church came forward, other relatives, and the Me Too started, and it still continues. We still, every time the phone rings, jump because we don't know if it's another victim of my father's. So I'm just asking you, removing the statute of limitations will help our state's youngest victims. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Mike Fitzpatrick, and I'm a board member uh, with No More Stolen Childhoods. And I'm here today to read testimony in favor of HB 974 on behalf of a gentleman who uh, wished to remain anonymous. Testimony. Good morning or afternoon. I'm a 61-year-old male who was groomed and sexually assaulted between the ages of 10 uh, to 13 by a volunteer at my church. I chose to remain anonymous because I have not publicly revealed what happened to me for reasons that should be obvious, shame, humiliation, embarrassment, and the psychological injury caused by reliving the trauma in public. I've been in therapy for approximately two years and have been diagnosed with anxiety disorder, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder all stemming from the abuse I suffered as a young boy. Unfortunately, my story is one that has become all too familiar in recent years. At around the age of 10, an adult volunteer at my church coached me in several sports for the church teams. In the influential role of coach, he befriended my family and me, eventually uh, becoming a trusted adult with whom my parents became comfortable allowing him to spend time with me. For a period of three years, he sexually assaulted me several times until at some point the abuse stopped. My purpose in testifying is to try to explain the reasons uh, period of limitation within, this, within such claims must be found inappropriate and often devastating for people like me. You see, while I always had some memory of events that might have led me to believe I had been sexually abused, these memories were very fragment, fragmented, episodic, and brief. It was not until reading news reports about the Pennsylvania Attorney General report that the memory fragments began to add up to my own experience of abuse. Nearly 50 years after the abuse began and well beyond even the most generous limitation periods. Since the realization that I, I too am one of the victims that we all have read about, I continue to struggle daily with insomnia, anxiety, panic attacks, periods of depression, all of which have strained my ability to continue to work and lead a normal life as one might hope. <clears throat> Through intense therapy with a psychologist experienced in trauma, I have been able to understand exactly what was done to me as a boy and to see how the abuse has affected me throughout my life. It was emotionally devastating to come to terms with my own abuse and to realize I'm not the person I always believed myself to be. But I'm, <clears throat> I am fortunate in many ways. I have a family that is very supportive. I have resources that afford me the opportunity to continue therapy and learn to cope with my new reality. And because the normal stresses of work, time pressure, and stuff of daily living are too much for me to handle, I am able to contemplate early retirement and a chance at, to live the best life I can under the most trying circumstances. Many are not as fortunate as I am. Many who have experienced the abuse wind up in one of the big three, dead, addicted, or incarcerated. It is for these others that I testify today. They deserve a chance to tell their experience if they can and to be made whole if possible by those responsible for causing or allowing such horrors to go on. For them, HB 974 will remove the legal obstacle that, that only adds to their suffering. On their behalf, I ask you to vote in favor of HB 974 
and give them a voice so they will not be left to suffer in silence. Thank you. Good afternoon, fellow Dick Clippinger, members of the committee. My name is Wendy Ling. I am a pediatrician, a child abuse pediatrician, and I'm here representing the Maryland chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is a statewide association representing more than 1,100 pediatricians and allied health professionals that care for children and promote the health and safety of all the children we serve. On behalf of MDAAP, we submit this letter in support of House Bill 974. Child sexual abuse is heartbreakingly common. Um, we've heard from other people who have testified anywhere from 20 to 25% of women will have been sexually abused at some point during their lives. About 10% of men will have been sexually abused. Preventing child sexual abuse requires policies to protect children, including ways to identify individuals who have abused children in the past and are likely to continue to abuse children. Eliminating the statute of limitations would enable hidden predators in Maryland to be identified, thereby protecting our children. As you've heard, similar bills have uncovered hundreds of hidden predators in other states. We know from extensive research that child sexual abuse can have profound, long-lasting negative effects on children and then they become adults as well. We know that there are significant mental health effects, depression, anxiety, school failure, inappropriate sex sexual behavior. We know that as adults, they have both physical health problems and mental health problems. Um, they're more likely to have eating disorders, risky sexual behavior, drug dependence, chronic abdominal pain, and poor overall health. Women who have been sexually abused spend more on health care costs than women who don't, and women who have been abused are more likely to have to rely on welfare for income. We also know that delayed disclosure is incredibly common, and we've heard about some of the reasons for that. Um, children are threatened. Children are told it didn't happen. Um, they cite fear. They cite, sh cite shame. Um, in my own practice, I hear from kids who are disclosing well after the abuse occurred, and I hear from their parents who are disclosing abuse for the first time ever. For all these reasons, it is incredibly important to allow sexual women and men who are sexually abused as children to seek justice for the harm that they have suffered even decades after the abuse has occurred. For these reasons, MDAAP strongly urges a favorable report. Thank you. Hi, my name is Jenna Cochran, and I'm an incest survivor. Um, my stepfather raped me when I was 13. That abuse started when I was 12. This is a picture of how old I was. I am the same age as my daughter is right this moment. Um, the reason I am here is because I am 48 years old, and I still live with this every single day. Um, I don't get to go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas with my family. My mom still, to this day, wants to pretend it didn't exist. My younger sister, Jessie, doesn't know, even though at the time I put my stepfather in prison. My mother was, when we talk about hiding predators, my mother was the biggest person to making sure that she hid my stepfather. She was the person who, when I was going through trial, 
put the car in the garage and said that if I did not sign a retraction and go to a notary republic, that she would kill herself. She drove me to two notary republics, dropped me off at a police station, and asked me to sign. She was the person who wound up going across town, wound up leaving the state of New Jersey and going with my stepfather for two years on the run. To this day, she is also the reason I don't get to go home for Thanksgiving. If you think that this doesn't affect us for the rest of your lives, it totally does. I wake up at night all the time. Even my husband cannot wake me up from a dead sleep because I wake up fighting. Because I remember that my stepfather fondled my breast. He did. He raped me in the family car. I cannot ever get those memories out of my brain. They just don't go away. I tried to commit suicide when I was in ninth grade. I just wanted the pain to go away. For this, I ask you to support this bill. So many people try to hide other people. It shouldn't happen. It shouldn't happen for my daughter or for anyone else. Thank you so much for listening to me today. Hi, my name is Dave Lorenz, and I was sexually abused at the age of 16 by my mentor and my friend who was a priest at the all-boys high school. He had been accused 50 times prior to ever showing up at that high school, and they knew what he was. I fully expected to take my secret to the grave, as one-third of all children do. But for me, at the age of 32, life took a turn, and I was basically forced to tell my family and friends. And that is when the healing began. Details of my abuse and recovery can be found in past testimony. I've been doing this for uh, since 2007. You all can find my story, and I don't have time to repeat it. It's ironic and tragic that I was raised in a Catholic school, and I received my faith and my values from the Catholics, and yet as I started to speak up, I found I was being pushed out of that church, and I was being pushed away from my friends um, and from the Catholic church. Did you know that only 4% of childhood sexual abuse cases involve the Catholic Church, and yet they are the ones who insist that we do not pass this legislation. They are keeping 96% of children who've been abused away from the justice. And I'd like to real quick add a, a small line about forgiveness. St. Thomas Aquinas posited that forgiveness requires justice, and this bill will give us justice. The Catholic Church will tell you they're doing everything they can to be transparent and to help victims. But what they don't tell you is they conspire and hide abusive priests. What I, and, and this is still going on. I mean, you can go look at the Pennsylvania grand jury report. You can go look at reports from Ireland, France, Australia. They all show the same pattern. But, but people say, oh, that's in the past. Just Google the, the Buffalo, um, New York diocese. It happened just last year that they were still hiding priests up there. Maryland is not immune to the legislative dirty tactics by the Catholic Church. In 2017, this very assembly was engaged in an effort to sneak uncodified language at the last minute into a bill purported to help victims of child abuse, when instead they knew the statute of repose, this so-called statute of repose language, would do nothing to help victims seek justice. It did everything to protect the church. In 20 years of fighting this fight, 20 years of telling my story and asking for help, 
I can honestly say I've never seen anything so underhanded. With their track record in Maryland and across the country, I don't know how anyone can possibly believe the church's intentions are about anything but protecting themselves and their assets, assets and not about protecting children. I'm not here asking you to listen. I'm here asking you to act so that we can seek justice for ourselves and thereby forgiveness. Catholic Church is trying to stand in my way, trying to say they have a better plan, trying to say that they know what's best for me. I don't believe them, and I don't think you should either. Thank you. Are there questions for the panel? Delegate Conaway, then Malone. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, panel, for coming in to testify. The gentleman that just spoke last, you said you've been testifying on this since 2007? Yes, sir. And has it been pretty much the same issue or the issue changes? No, we've been asking to extend. We've been, this is, only in the last couple of years have we gone all as far as saying eliminate the statute of limitations. We were asking for an extension of 20 years. A couple of times, it's gone back and forth between extending it and eliminating it, right? But we always had a look back window, something that we felt we needed to open the doors of justice to those people who had been left out and to expose predators, right? I mean, that's what this is going to do. It's going to expose predators. And as Delegate Wilson said, it's been shown to work in other states. Thank you very much for your testimony. Thank you. Cochran and all the witnesses today, I commend you for your courage in telling your stories. Thank you. Are there further questions for this panel? Seeing none, I'm sorry, seeing one. Delegate Cox. Real quick, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you all for your stories. And I just had a quick question for the gentleman who spoke last. There is a recent filing I just was made aware of yesterday, I think, that the Diocese of Harrisburg, I think it was, filed for bankruptcy about one year after this same bill passed in Pennsylvania. My concern is, do you think that there's enough safety net of a protection to make sure that claimants won't be left out to dry in a legitimate process because it might overreach in terms of the look back, opening up so many potential attacks that nobody gets any payout? Well, there's been approximately about 15 bankruptcy filings around the country because of extending statute of limitations. Dioceses have filed bankruptcy. In none of those cases were the claimants left out. And in none of those cases do we find that the charitable works of the church have been reduced. You've got to remember that the Catholic Charities is primarily publicly funded, anywhere from 80 to 90 percent, and 80 percent nationally, 90 percent in the state of Maryland. So they get most of their funding. None of the claimants were locked out. And, in fact, when the Diocese of San Diego filed their bankruptcy, they came in and disclosed their assets to the bankruptcy court. And the bankruptcy court threatened them with – I'm sorry, I've lost my mind. They told them to go back and do it over because they were using estimates of their real estate based on 1960s values. So, I mean, they were – I'm sorry, they were threatened with contempt of court. That's the word I was looking for. Sorry. But, no, once all that was settled down, all of the claimants received all of the – as far as I could tell, all of the funds. But that's a little bit dark because we don't always have 
full access into what we uh, into what comes out of bankruptcy court. In fact, that's one of the reasons that the, the church does file bankruptcy is to keep um, a lid on the public disclosure of what goes on inside bankruptcy court. And unfortunately, um, that kind of thing does uh, hinder one of the primary goals of what we're trying to do is the Hidden Creditor Act. You know, we're trying to expose creditors. And when a church files bankruptcy, it, it, it kind of keeps that from happening for them. And that's unfortunate. But it, but it, it has never uh, caused, though, as we were, the well to run dry. That's what I don't know if I answered your question. Well, I'm, I just agree with you. I, I'm worried that that's what this will do. It could create an, uh, increase the number of those kinds, just based upon what I just pointed out. Increase the number of what? Bankruptcy. And, and there, there have been bankruptcies, and, and it's never caused a problem. Thanks. May I add that bankruptcy just allows for reorganization. Chapter 11 bankruptcy does not put organizations out of business. Further questions for the panel? Seeing none, thank you all very much. Felicia Langle, Kurt Ruprecht, Jean Weiner. Good afternoon. My name is Kurt Ruprecht from Forest Hill, Maryland, and I am here as a survivor of childhood sexual abuse to state my support for the Hidden Predator Act. I was born in Salisbury, Maryland in 1970. I grew up attending church, actively participating, and receiving my childhood sacraments at St. Francis de Sales Parish in Salisbury. It was in Salisbury in 1979 that I was groomed, sexually molested, and physically assaulted by Father Joseph A. McGovern. I have testified previously to this committee in detail to the trauma I suffered as a terrified nine-year-old boy and the agonizing mental and physical damage I have endured my entire life since those events. Today, I'm here to really to speak for others from my generation who suffered sexual abuse at St. Francis de Sales. They continue to suffer in silence, and I am humbled they have reached out to me to speak for them. Please understand that what significantly helped to seal our fates was that we were children of the Diocese of Wilmington who lived in Maryland, not Delaware. The abuses of the Diocese of Wilmington are well documented. 85% of their parishes had predator priests. The bishops and leadership in Wilmington conspired and covered the abuses as long as they could until 2007 when Delaware passed SOL reforms, which included a look-back window for victims. In Maryland, as past childhood abuse survivors, we still wait because the abuse we suffered at the hands of that same institution occurred in Salisbury, six miles on the other side of the state line. Most infuriating is the documented knowledge, which was brought to light only because discovery was required by the Delaware reforms, which I previously mentioned. The knowledge of the diocese's explicit strategy was to avoid exposure within Delaware by concentrating their predator priest assignments within the Maryland parishes. Wilmington conducted this program with the knowledge and participation of elements of Delaware law enforcement. They even sent their abusing priests to the occasional treatment, or rest to Maryland facilities. The numbers prove this dark reality. The parishes in Delaware contain 79% of the diocese members and average 2.4 predator priest assignments per parish. In Maryland, which contained only 21% of the diocese members, the parish average was seven predator priest assignments per parish. Of the 59 parishes in the diocese, the one with by far the highest number of predator priest assignments was St. Francis de Sales in Salisbury. 
Two of its pastors, Fathers Wind and Irwin, were themselves abusers and considered predator mentors of younger abusive priests, which were so frequently assigned to their supervision. Please know I do not hate the Catholic Church. Because of my wounds, I can no longer attend church with my family. Yet I understand the church now is truly made of the people who are my family and friends, countless volunteers, teachers, counselors, caregivers, and many clergy who have my friendship and respect. All of those people support me and support this bill. House Bill 974 is for all our citizens. No single institution of any kind deserves the power to deny this protection to those of us who are damaged and to our children when they are at their most vulnerable. With all my heart, I implore you to support this bill. Thank you for inviting me here today. My name is Jean Hargett and Wainer. I'm here in support of all victims of childhood sexual abuse, myself included. I was sexually abused and raped at Archbishop Keogh High School between the years of 1967 and 1971 by Father Joseph Maskell and others. Accomplices to these crimes are the institutions that betrayed their trusting faith communities by allowing their children to be left in harm's way. The trauma I endured during those years was so great that in order to survive, I had to sever from that young victim and bury her deep within my subconscious. In spring of 1992, at 38, the age of the current statute of limitations, I felt as if a 14-year-old girl sat down next to me and said, I have something to tell you. I then began throwing up memories. These repressed memories that continue to surface and be worked on to this day may be triggered by a photo, a smell, or a place. These disgustingly detailed images and thoughts do not present themselves in a chronological fashion. As the memory unfolds, I feel on multiple levels that I am going through that horrible experience for the very first time. Late in 92, later in 92, I had a number of meetings with the church representatives. At two of those meetings, I gave formal statements. After the first one, Joseph Maskell, who was in his 50s, not a feeble old man, was removed from his parish and sent for evaluation. In 1994, I agreed to file a suit, a civil suit, against Joseph Maskell, the Archdiocese of Baltimore, and the School Sisters of Notre Dame with Teresa Lancaster. I was Jane Doe. She was Jane Rowe. I said yes, not to bankrupt the Catholic Church, but because Maskell had returned to work as a pastor to a neighboring parish. I was upset that he was around kids, and the thought that he was in the area and knew that I had told a secret terrified me. I had visions of him shooting me with the gun he threatened me with at Keogh. Another reason was that the statute of limitations in 1971 which we were bound by, stated we had to report abuse within three years of it ending. I couldn't imagine I was expected to report something I didn't even remember. I believed I was still in a permissible time frame. We lost the case in 1995 due to the court's decision that repressed memories were not scientifically proven, keeping the statute of limitations intact. As victims, we need to know that perpetrators will be held accountable when found out. If not, their threats that no one will believe us or that we're liars are reinforced. 
This decision undermined me and many others. Our health progress was deteriorated because of this decision for years. It sent us back into hiding. Because the science behind the effects trauma has on the brain has grown and repressed memories have become accepted, I think having a statute of limitations imposed on victims of childhood sexual abuse is not fair to the victims while it does benefit the perpetrators. I ask each of you to please vote to pass bill number HB 974. Good afternoon, Mr. Chairman. I'm Kobe Little. I represent the Maryland State Conference of the NAACP. Members of the committee, I am here in my capacity as the political action chair and vice president of the state conference, but I'm also here as a faith leader. My heart goes out to those who have given their testimony, and I pray peace is yours. The NAACP was founded at a time when people in power abused their power and did great harm to vulnerable populations. At our core, we are a justice organization, and we support House Bill 974. Jesus taught his disciples, I'm a Christian, Jesus taught his disciples to allow the children to come. And he told them that they ought not deny the children. This past Sunday, I was in service sharing the gospel at St. Philip's Episcopal Church in Harlem. And the lectionary reading said, Hurry, hurry, make right what you have done wrong with your neighbor. Pay what you owe before you are carried to court. I share this with you because there is no faith leader, there is no representative of a faith institution who ought in good faith dare sit at this table and tell you that there are good reasons that the faith community has for denying the passage of this bill, which would extend the statute of limitations. We pray that you're not only not in agreement and compassion with the people who have testified, but that you take action to make them whole. Thank you. start with a quote from Albert Einstein. The world is a dangerous place, not because of those who do evil, but because of those who look on and do nothing. My name is Kay Connors, and I'm a clinical social worker and a trauma therapist, and I've been doing this work for over 35 years. I'm on faculty at the University of Maryland School of Medicine in the Department of Psychiatry. And I am testifying today for the, related to the Hidden Predator Bill because it is essential for justice and healing for the survivors of child sexual abuse. Central to healing from sexual abuse is the opportunity to be seen and heard, along with creating safety for the survivor and potential future victims. Child sexual abuse is the sexual victimization of a child by an adult or an older child, and it is frequently accompanied, as we have heard, by the brave uh, and courageous survivors today by coercion, threats, and force. And it can include a range of sexual acts. Child sexual abuse is a worldwide public health 
problem that occurs in all communities, in all groups, socioeconomic groups, educational, racial, and ethnic groups. Due to its hidden nature and the frequent absence of physical evidence, child sexual abuse often goes undetected and undisclosed. As Dr. Lane already testified, traumatic stress and adversity in childhood has great impact on the overall health and well-being of individuals, including, and very specifically, I'm going to talk about the impact of, um, of mental health. So child, child sexual abuse is known to be um, associated with having two or more co-occurring mental health disorders, including ADHD, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, addictions, and impulse control problems. Child sexual abuse is also known to be associated with some of the most serious mental health problems that individuals and our societies face, including suicide and psychosis. Adolescents and young people who have experienced child sexual abuse are at higher risk of developing psychotic disorders such as schizophrenia. For example, researchers found that sexual abuse before the age of 16 was strongly associated with psychosis. The symptoms are most difficult for people with child sexual abuse um, histories. They're impairing and distressing symptoms, including hallucinations and delusions. This may be a part of the hypervigilance and the thinking pattern that child sexual abuse survivors need to use to cope while living in unsafe and psychologically damaging situations. The last point I'd like to make is about the point of disclosure. So the, the psychological impact of trauma, both the post-traumatic stress disorder uh, symptoms that include avoiding thinking about, remembering, and talking about um, sexual abuse because it is frightening and overwhelmingly painful um, are quite common. In addition, there are fears of reprisals, including not being listened to or believed by authority figures. And these are all things that impact the delays in disclosure of child sexual abuse. Good afternoon, Mr. Chairman and members of the committee. My name is Felicia Langell. I am a student in the public health law clinic at the University of Maryland Law School. I am here in support of House Bill 974, and I will address repealing the so-called statute of repose in Section 5117 of the Maryland Code. A statute of repose is traditionally used in product liability and product defects cases, construction defects cases, estate cases, and medical malpractice. The purpose of a statute of repose is to prevent unpredictability for industry and to protect insurers' ability to predict future claims. Section 5117, however, put a statute of repose in place for child sexual abuse. This mechanism is inappropriate for legal and public policy reasons. First, on average, survivors of child sexual abuse do not disclose their injury until age 52, long after the statute has run. Second, the Maryland courts have been unwilling to rule on immunity for time-barred claims in cases of child sexual abuse without clear legislative intent. And third, the legislature never intended to grant permanent immunity from civil liability for sexual predators or the institutions that shelter them. Moreover, the uncodified tolling language of 20 years past the age of majority is inconsistent with a statute of repose. This is statute of limitations language. 
No other jurisdiction has instituted a statute of repose in the context of intentional acts like interpersonal violence. Repealing the so-called statute of repose from Section 5117 will give survivors of child sexual abuse access to legal remedy that they otherwise would not have. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Mr. Chair, Madam Vice Chair, and members of the committee. Thank you for allowing me to have speak today. I'm Sarah Conway, a longtime resident of Annapolis and a survivor of sexual abuse by teachers at the key school here in town. Last year, a Baltimore firm law firm retained by Key completed an independent investigation and found that 10 people in positions of authority um, sexually exploited 16 students. And even more importantly, they concluded that all but one of the, in all but one of these cases, others in the school community, including faculty, staff, administrators, and board members were aware of the abuse and chose to remain silent and not report it. In my case, I was 14 when two teachers singled me out for special attention. After creating a bond, gaining my trust um, and affection over many months, the sexual abuse started and lasted for more than a year. So why do we need a look back window? Because coming forward is difficult. And even when survivors report here in Maryland, in the past and now, it does not assure justice. The civil statute of limitations expired for me when I was 21. I still had, at that point, few words for the pain and confusion that I felt. My parents were devastated and tried to take action, but the school only shrugged. And when my mother consulted the Anne Arundel County State's, State's Attorney, he strongly dissuaded her from contacting law enforcement. With nowhere to turn, my parents suffered terribly and soon separated. In 1993, Key School honored one of its most prolific abusers with a memorial service. <coughs> okay. uh, memorial service, many of the attendees were key teachers and administrators. When I stood up and shared my story of abuse, I was met with silence and later victim blaming. The head of the school asked me to keep it quiet and denied that the school had any institutional responsibility. In 97, I gave a detailed accounting of my abuse and how common it was at the school to the police, and yet no investigation was ever done. In 2018, I was interviewed again and many who are arguing against this bill will say there's no statute of limitations on felonies in Maryland. But when I was 14, I was penetrated in every which way by my teacher, who lives in Anne Arundel County still. Yet I continue to be told by law enforcement that I cannot, <clears throat> that they cannot proceed because they are unsure whether those acts were felony crimes at the time. So you may say that they are felon there's no statute of limitations on felonies, but in, in practice that nothing happens. Being turned away, silenced, and shamed by the school and law enforcement is the very definition of institutional betrayal. Research shows it magnifies the harm caused by sexual abuse. It increases anxiety, 
PTS symptoms, sexual dysfunction, and dissociation. If institutions are causing real, measurable harm, not only by allowing the abuse to occur, but by silencing its victims, why shouldn't victims be empowered with a look-back window to hold them accountable for that harm? Thank you. Are I hope you'll support HB 974. <laughs> That's fine. Thank you very much. Are there questions for the panel? Delegate Conaway. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, panel, for coming in to testify. To, to, to testify. It's a lady with the red on. I just. My name's Jean. Miss Jean, if you could just please, I'm just trying to wrap myself around this. So the the, the person that you described was a, a priest at the at the school. Yes. Yes. He was a chaplain. And the chaplain had a gun. Yes, he did. He put the gun to my temple after taking the bullets out. And when he pulled the trigger, he said, if my father ever found out I was whoring around, that he would do it but keep the bullets in. That's fine. Thank you, Silver Rider. Are there further questions for the panel? Seeing none, thank you all very, very much for testifying here today. Thank you.